Today, I welcome Joe Algrant, head of school at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School in New York. In this episode, I discuss ethical education, creating a responsive and progressive curriculum, embedding diversity in social emotional learning, and service-led projects in Manhattan. How did you end up in your current position at your current school? Well, I'm the head ethical culture fieldson. I've been here in this role only since July, but I taught here. It really, I learned how to be a teacher in this school. I came here in 1985 and worked here until 2002 as a science teacher. And then I got to grow in a lot of different ways while I was here. So I was away for 20 years, more in an administrative role. And then when the job of head of school came open, I was very curious about it because I was very happy not being a head of school. But when I started talking to people here and people who I had taught a long time ago, there were a lot of really pretty great reasons to come back to a school that you knew and loved and lead it into its next generation. Yes, it's been like a homecoming in a lot of ways for me. You've said that we need to adjust to students in this post-COVID era. How have students changed following the pandemic? Oh, my gosh. They've changed in lots of different ways. I think we're only beginning to understand, actually, what that really means. Because, listen, different kids had to struggle in so many different ways over those years. And there were, you know, if if you go back to the places where kids were at home and we were really in kind of a pretty major lockdown, you know, you had little kids who I, I was talking with a teacher last week, a phys ed teacher, and she told me she had a whole generation of kids who never learned how to skip because skipping was something you learned in school and not if you were home locked up or, you know, by yourself all the time, you didn't learn such things. There are a whole bunch of physical things that kids really didn't learn as well as all the, you know, kind of the social pieces that interactions, live interactions bring, you know, both the formal ones and a lot of the informal ones. So you had a lot of students who missed, they missed a lot of education about how to be together, how to be in groups, how to find new friends. There were a lot of missing of stuff they didn't get to do, you know, and then you had kids at home, some of whom, you know, did fine studying on screen, some of whom Their learning styles just didn't match that at all. And it was very difficult for them to focus. Students who, you know, who had internet problems and were having a hard time, you know, being able to be on when they were supposed to be. You had kids in homes where there were so many people that it was very hard to study or work quietly. Do you think students' expectations of education have changed since then? I think they did. I think that and teachers all of a sudden were doing very different things besides what they were used to. You know, and you put on top of it, and I'll come back to you in a minute, but I I think you put that on top of it that, you know, in earlier generations, kids were able to have a consistent experience and feel that the future, you know, and feel pretty positive about the future for themselves. You know, we have some kids now who have lived in a very inconsistent world with a lot of up and down, a lot of strife in a lot of different ways. And I think it makes them look at the future differently than we used to be able to. And I think they look at it with a lot more anxiety. And so I think that's also kind of impacted how they, you know, how they think about themselves and how they prepare, you know, how they're preparing themselves for their own future. The other side of the teaching equation of the teachers. And so yes. how, how have teachers at Ethical Culture Fields and School adjusted to these changes and also have their expectations to how they educate and work within a school changed? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think for sure. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, we ask teachers to not just do what they have known how to do well, but we've now asked them to be 
you know, mental health counselors much more than before. We've asked them to know how to teach in these weird technologies. We've asked them to do a, spend a lot more time dealing with parents. And because of the, you know, the racial tensions, we've also asked them to be facilitators of difficult conversations. We've asked them to monitor student health. We just require, we asked a lot of things for which they were not trained. And they went into a period where I think it was hard to feel good about a lot of it because you didn't know it was hard to measure. And teachers were used to success in different kinds of success and have had to redefine for sure what that meant during those days. And the fact that we've all come through it the way we have in a lot of ways is a huge success. And even as much as you tell them, as we tell each other, it doesn't always feel that way at all. You know, and I think now that we're kind of learning what students are like on this side, teachers are going to have to kind of rearrange again, I think, their expectations of what students do well, what they have to keep training them on, what they didn't used to have to pay attention to that now they do. I think it's a real challenge. And often you hear young people expressing that they're learning things that they don't feel they'll ever need to know. I had this example just last night with my son who's about to graduate and go to college. It's just because I'd come back from visiting a school and I remember him learning when he was 16 about covalent bonds and ionic bonds. I just remember because my wife loved chemistry and yes. my daughter had gone through it and he, he just couldn't get it. And I said, I saw this post and I thought of you. And he goes, do you know what, dad? I still don't know what that is yet. I got the highest mark I could possibly get. <laughs> he goes, I still don't know what it means. And he said to me, surely that's why education is flawed. I could learn things and memorize things. So you've expressed that we need a relevant and responsive curriculum. What do you mean by responsive? You're on the covalent bonds. I I I love it. I I love it because I taught covalent bonds and I understood totally what he's saying to you. Your example is interesting because in some ways, covalent and ionic bonds are extremely relevant if you understand why. And you have the example that, for instance, if you're going to talk about water, you know, which is a prevalent piece of what I think everybody needs to understand. To really understand water, you have to understand what makes water, water. And to do that, you have to understand, you know, the ionic and covalent bonds, right? Which is really just to say that a lot of stuff that gets taught can be relevant if you take the time to put it in the right context, which I think doesn't always, doesn't always happen. You know, that's where a school like ethical culture, I think really is able to shine because we put everything in the context of why it matters and the ethical dimensions of whatever the subject is. And in a school that is always striving to turn out students who are going to try to make change in the world, you have to give them a curriculum that lets them do that. And so that's not only the subject matter, but it's the way you approach it in terms of, all right, well, we're going to problem solve a little bit here. We're going to talk about problems and then we're going to try to solve them. You know, and we do that. I was in a third grade class the other day. And they have a fictional town, a fictional city, which she calls Greentown, which is New York, more or less. But they study the water patterns. They just study a lot of the, really at a third grade level, they study a lot of the important aspects of what makes a city a city in terms of the science pieces. And then they have to problem solve. And they you go to the level station where they are making, literally trying to make something that will improve one piece of Greentown. You know, and then I walk into a, a semester-long program where students, instead of regular class, they study New York City. And this is a small piece of the school. But I walked in there and they were having the same discussion about water that the third graders were having, only at this much more advanced level. This is curriculum that is relevant to them, not only the subject matter, but the skills and the habits that we're trying to build in our students so that they're able to go out in the world 
you know, as a science teacher, it was always, well, this may be the last time that a student sits and learns any chemistry or any biology, which was more my field. So for me, I wanted them to have a good grasp of what they needed to know so that they could go off and make decisions that were smart ones. I think curriculum needs to be relevant in that way that it prepares students that way. Also, for kids, they find it much more interesting if it's relevant to them, you know, as do we all probably. So there are courses here where they kind of make up their own. They decide which problems they want to study. Then they go off and they do that. Is it just about responding to current world events or is it responding to local events? Is it just responding to the current status of where we're at in our journey in this planet? And you then bring in, you say, all these different skills and let the children bring in the education that they understand because it's connected. I think that's one piece. There's another whole way to look at responsive, responsive teaching, which is, you know, kind of the schools and the teachers' obligations to understand the backgrounds of the students who are in their class and be able to make sure that each student is able to elevate their own learning using their background as a strength. You know, so a culturally responsive classroom, which, you know, in this school and in many schools has people from many different backgrounds. You know, and this is another place where teachers have to be kind of more on top of it than they used to be because they have to understand more about where these kids are coming from in order to help them learn. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And how do you manage, obviously, making it current and responsive without it being disruptive and inconsistent because sometimes you know how do you manage the change you know and even with your your teachers so they know that it's relevant to bring it into how they're teaching there probably is a model the model in this school is a lot has to do with not only do we want the kids to learn to be autonomous but the teachers feel very autonomous also which again lets them be creative and really smart about what they're about what they're doing it happens in different ways, right? Obviously, the teachers have to talk a lot with each other about what relevance means in the different subject areas and, and how you, you know, how you organize a curriculum that feels relevant. And some of those things are very subject specific. And a lot of the culturally responsive stuff we do as whole faculties and in other kinds of groups where the teachers are, are in different kinds of, of seminars or workshops or reading, you know, about ways to make their classrooms feel responsive to everybody. And how do we ensure that a curriculum does remain relevant? For one thing, the children will tell you. And again, I'm just learning this school again, but I've been listening to some of the different departments actually struggle with how to make sure they are being relevant, right? So in an English curriculum, you know, there are lots of ways to teach English and lots of books, obviously, that you can choose from. Well, how do you ever figure out for a ninth grade, you know, what are important books and what are not important books and what are books that help kids actually learn about their society, you know, and which ones are the classical canon that has been read and read and read and read is, you know, is that relevant anymore? Sometimes yes, sometimes not so much. And yeah, teachers have to make hard choices. I once had a teacher come into me, um, the school I used to work at, where they had a curriculum in their 11th grade English program, which they really, they had worked so hard, they thought this is it. Every child in America should have this curriculum. She walked into me one day and she had a she had had a nightmare. And I said, oh, my gosh, what what happened? And she said the nightmare was that her department chair was telling her she had to remove one poem 
from an entire curriculum, and she couldn't decide which poem that was going to be. They thought they really just had it nailed, nailed down, and it was a great <laughs> curriculum. There's no question about it. There's been a, a lot of that, but at the same time, again, now you have kids in some of those classes, in fact, in that class, who never saw an author who looked like them, who never saw, never had a discussion about a topic that was really relevant to the stuff that happened to them when they walked out the door and went home. You can't be a responsible school without making sure that kids are, you know, are gaining the tools that help them in their lives. And how do you go sort of measuring this way of educating? You know, did you just still have standardized tests to do it, or is there a greater metric that you look for? Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly there are the standardized tests that are, you know, that are out there. I will confess to not being a lover of many of them or any of them. They can tell you something, but they don't tell you everything. Yeah, we've tried different tests of critical thinking and tests of that really are more about the skill than they are the subject. Some of those are useful. I think in this school, one of the things we're going to be talking about is how do we measure whether kids, you know, how close our students come to actually meeting what our expectations are in the big picture of graduating from this school. I measured it by what they go on to do. And when they, when they talk to you five or 10 or 15 years later, where have they landed? You know, and historically from this school, they've landed as teachers or social workers or working for nonprofit organizations. Um, so they really have kind of internalized the, this do good, be good citizens and help make the world a better place ethos that the school was really founded on, you know, in 1870 and 1878 as this ethical humanist institution. You know, and now in this day and age, too, entrepreneurs who actually have gone in different routes, but they don't forget the ethics piece of what they're doing, are turning towards businesses or starting their own businesses now, which have this piece that can certainly feel you know, entrepreneurial, but that also have components that are doing good for others. Because again, that's where the whole piece of ethical culture is about you know, helping others. How does that sit alongside? It's almost the paradox of being in New York City, which is shiny and, well, it's shiny at most of it, but it's, we've got the capitalists, we've got Wall Street really not too far down the road from you. That's right. You know, everything is it's just New York City. You have this, you're just outside. How do you balance that friction, this big draw of capitalism and materialism, and you're yeah. here trying to say, actually, kids? Yeah, it's an ongoing discussion, that for sure. You know, we certainly have our thoughts about where we think our students should be going when they leave. But that's why when I described this city semester course that I talked about before this semester, what they're doing is seeing the city in all its glory, you know, the stuff that works really well, the stuff that doesn't, um, so that they can be here and, you know, and, and be with their families and be living in parts of the city that might be very glamorous. And, you know, they're also spending time understanding what the whole city is about, kind of the beauty of places that they never thought of or thought about or been to visit or talk with anybody, you know, who comes from that very different, very different walk of life. It is the merger of those and the understanding that they can both exist. You know, you can find commonality with with anybody. Yeah, that project that everyone gets, it's just amazing. The fact that and I just wish more schools did that. I mean, certainly here where we are UK, a lot more time should be given to going out and looking at problems that they can fix that are local to them. We talked about um, mental health, well-being, happiness, and schools need to obviously support this beyond the academic curriculum. How yeah. does diversity work and social emotional growth intersect? I've started to boil it down to just the word belonging, 
and to understand what belonging really means. And if you if you start to you know kind of dissect that and unpack it, there's a piece of it that is very much about equity and equality and and inclusion. And there's also a piece that's very psychological about what it means to feel like you belong, you know, like you belong to one place or or another. We're you know working in different ways to help kids you know achieve that feeling, which I think we do. You know, we do a nice job in some ways. I think schools have a hard, society has a hard time in making sure that everybody feels like they're a part of things. I mean, you talk about belonging. I mean, belonging sits on the second rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, yeah. you've got you know the basic fundamental needs, and then you get to love and belonging. We look at what belonging means to our young adults or our young teens, and it's very difficult. You know, they still want all these social emotional connections are going through a lot of change, but they're also having this inundation of 24-7 technology disruption and and distractions and influence. Is that a big part of what schools should do? Because there's there's a lot of ethical issues going on online. We don't know what's going on. Is that a school's responsibility? I actually think it is. I mean, you know, there are, again, different trains of thought. I've always been in large part because I grew up as a teacher here. I've been about the whole child. You know, that's where Felix Adler, who founded this school, you know, the John Deweys of the world, you know, who really believe that until you can get to some of these psychological pieces, you know, the learning isn't really very real. If belonging is going to be low on the hierarchy, you can't get to the upper ones until you satisfy the lower ones. To me, the schools are responsible and not all teachers believe this. And um, you have teachers who are really very focused on their subject and that's what they love and do really, really well. I am a huge fan of those people, but high school or and I should say, because they're both true, high school is really and and secondary school, elementary school is about the development of children and helping them turn into adults. And, you know, so the beautiful merger of those two, those are the teachers, I think, who students will always remember the most because they they felt cared for by teachers. And again, that's what helps them in the academic realm and helps them achieve the most. Yeah. What does progressive education mean today as opposed to, and, and what was the big differences from, say, 10 or 20 years ago? To me, actually, it's the word. Progressive, at least in the United States, you know, progressivism in the old days was kind of very simply about education. People who talked about it, the response was, well, that's very loose. That's really not built on very much. You don't have to know very much. It's all very kind of touchy-feely, loosey-goosey. The kids do what they want and, and all that stuff. And that never was the truth, but it was at least that was more nice, a little bit more benign than I think what progressives mean now. And if you, you know, it's been a politicized term that I try to stay away from, actually. But when we talk about progressive education here, we have 10 words that we use. There's ethical, challenging, relevant, playful, inclusive, responsive, empowering, experiential healthy and interdependent. Is there a lead? Is there a bigger one of those that you spend time on? Like, I mean, experiential, it's that side of entrepreneurship where you've got to try yeah. things. I think yeah. that, that one really stood out to me. Again, this the one of the mottos of the early school, you know, learning by doing. The school was created for, you know, the deed over creed, right? So it's very much about being active. It's very much about being active. And school historically is everybody sits in their chair and gets told stuff. Or they go and look stuff up and they write papers. Not very many schools do that anymore. But in, in a school like this, we're very much outward focused that way. 
you know, we do kind of give them a lot of freedom. And I think that's where progressive sometimes has gotten a bad turn. But we do want them to learn how to manage themselves early on because that's a lifelong skill. If you were to look into your crystal ball, Joe, what would the future of education look like for you? In the same way, we, you know, I say to parents, we have no idea what children who are in school today, what work they'll be doing 20 years from now or 30 years from now. It's all changing so rapidly that we really have to be a school that is about skills and habits and making kids happy and anxious and not anxious, but excited to learn and knowing how to do that on their own. You know, I think schools have to go more and more in that direction because we don't know what's going to be. So we have to make sure that we have to make the students are ready for their futures. Ethical culture, I think, has always done a really good job with. And so I think we'll continue to do that. But, you know, I foresee schools that may not have specific academic departments anymore, at least at the higher levels. There are ways to study problems that really get kind of tied down, bogged down if they're in a specific subject or not. You know, I taught a class about AIDS in the early 90s when it was first a real high profile for adolescents and teenagers because it was a scary thing. And what we realized was that teaching AIDS, teaching about AIDS and epidemics, you could study any subject, really, through the lens of that epidemic. And so we could study the biology and the chemistry. Like, so all of a sudden, there's something that matters, but also the history and the culture and the sociology you know, and the politics all wrapped up, you know, and there's a real beauty also about learning in that way. Those connections are things also that students, I don't think, forget as readily as your son is going to forget about what a covalent bond is. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.